Uh, if you get your Bibles back out, let's turn back to Acts 17. You'll find it on page 1113, Acts 17. And please do keep your Bibles open as we go through this tonight to make sure that what I'm saying is what's in the Bible. Acts 17. So over the past few weeks or months, really, we've been going through a series in Acts. And we've now reached Acts 17, verse 16. So what's the story so far? Well, for those of us who were here last week, you remember that we saw Paul and Silas and Timothy in Thessalonica. They then went to Berea. But the Thessalonian Jews caught up with Paul. They started to stir up some trouble in Berea. And Paul was forced to flee from there for fear of the crowd. And he fled to Athens, where we find him now. The intellectual capital of the known world at that time. And we read here at the start of it that Paul was waiting there for Silas and Timothy to come and join him when they left Berea. So Paul's in Athens, first time there, the intellectual capital of the world, the cultural capital of the world, and how does he choose to spend his time waiting for Silas and Timothy? Well, he goes sightseeing, of course. Quite the natural thing to do when you're in a brand new city, you're excited to be there, you want to see what's about you, see the culture, see the sights. It's like when my wife and I, Abby, went off to America this year. We'd done a, a very cool road trip. And we went to places like Washington, D.C., we went to Boston, we went to Charleston, we went to Schenectady, for those who know that, <laughs> in upstate New York. And what did we do? We went sightseeing. We wanted to see the sights, see the culture, see the historical uh, borders they have there. And this is no different for Paul. So, if you were to go sightseeing in Athens in Paul's time, what would you see? Well, perhaps the most visual standing out thing that you'd see in Athens would be the Acropolis. This you see up here. This is like the ancient cathedral. Notice that high up in the rock, you can see it from miles and miles around. One person described this as a vast composition of architecture and sculpture dedicated to the national glory and to the worship of the gods, the Acropolis. Maybe after seeing the Acropolis, Paul then went to the Agora. This was kind of like a courtyard place where you can listen to debates, you can listen from statesmen, from philosophers, find out what new ideas were getting discussed at that time. Like I said, Athens was the intellectual capital of the world. And this is where new philosophies, new ideas, new thinking was born there from people sitting about discussing it. There was lots for Paul to enjoy. Great architecture, so much history, great worldly wisdom there as well. Now, if Paul perhaps ended up in Edinburgh and was to go sightseeing here, what would Paul see in Edinburgh? Well, like the Acropolis, Paul perhaps see Edinburgh Castle, sitting on top of a rock in the middle of a city, seen for miles around. Maybe he'd head down to the Parliament, go down the Royal Mile. Maybe listen to some debates there from our statesmen. Perhaps he'd head off to one of the four universities we have in this city, and hear the latest in research, the latest in thinking that's getting discussed there. Maybe he might enjoy the architecture in Edinburgh. The National Monument, which should not look out of place in Athens itself. Of course, that was inspired by Athens. Maybe he'd look back in the history of Edinburgh and see the many figures who were so influential in Edinburgh, being perhaps at its time the intellectual capital of the world. People from the Age of Enlightenment, David Hume, Adam Smith, James Boswell. What about the writers? So Walter Scott, John Buchan, Ian Rankin, Alexander McCall Smith, J.K. Rowling even. And of course Edinburgh has got such a rich 
culture to it as well. A number of museums, art galleries, theatres, the festivals, book, film, jazz and blues, politics, international, and of course, the biggest arts festival in the world, the Edinburgh Fringe. It really isn't hard to see why Edinburgh was given the nickname the Athens of the North. Here's a question. Despite all this architecture, this history, these wonderful buildings to look at, what was it that Paul really saw in Athens? What did he really see? Look with me at verse 1. Sorry, verse 16. Why Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. A city that is full of idols. See, it wasn't the grandeur or the beauty of the city that caught Paul's eye. It wasn't the intellectual debates, the the cultural scene that grabbed Paul's attention. No. It was the sheer number of idols that captured Paul's eye. Idols after idols after idols after idols. Paul saw a city full of idols. In fact, this phrase conveys to us the idea of a city being under the idols. There were so many idols in Athens that it was weighed down by the weight of them. In fact, a Roman satirist said, it is easier to find a god in Athens than a man. Numerous temples, shrines, altars for every god you can think of. Athena, the one in the middle there, whose gleaming spear point was visible 40 miles away. I don't know if you can see the small guy standing to the right of her. It gives you an idea of the scale of these idols. They had Apollo, the city's patron, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, Bacchus, Neptune, Diana. And that's before we even get started with the Greek gods. There were so many gods, so many idols all around Athens. They even had an altar to an unknown god just in case he missed one of them out by mistake. An altar to the unknown God, and that's there in the bottom right-hand corner, at least I think a replica of it at least. This was a city that was smothered in idols. Athens was a city that was swamped with idols. Now if Paul was to walk around the streets of Edinburgh, if he was to go down Princess Street, along Rose Street tonight, what do you think he would see in our city? Would be in awe of the castle, marvel at the architecture, enjoy a show of the Edinburgh Fringe? Or like Athens, would he also see a city full of idols? You see, idols do not have to be massive gold statues. Idols don't have to be an image or a 40-foot high statue. An idol is anything that's become a God thing. An idol is anything that has become a God thing. Anything that has taken the place of God as the center of our worship. Anything that receives the glory and the honor where only God should receive the glory and the honor. You see, in Edinburgh, we may not worship Diana or Venus or Athena, but we do worship money. We worship sex, power, comfort, our children our spouses, our parents, our friends, our relationships, computer games, laziness, escapism, TV, praise of man, work, sporting achievements. 
academic success, fame, food, alcohol, drugs, religion, church, good works. We worship idols. I'm sure many of us here tonight can identify at least one of these idols in our lives. I certainly can. Edinburgh is swamped with idols. We may not see them in statue form, but they are there in how we live our lives. They are there in how we worship these things above the creator God. We make God's creation to be the God thing. So what should we do? How should we as a church respond to what we see around us in this city today? Well, let's continue looking through this chapter to see how Paul responded to see if we can learn anything for us today. And I think in this passage, we see Paul do two things in response to seeing a city full of idols. Number one, Paul felt. Paul felt something. And number two, Paul spoke. Paul felt and Paul spoke. What did Paul feel? Let's go back to verse 16 again. Paul felt great distress. He saw all these idols and he felt a distress, a great distress, a righteous jealousy in him because he saw many things getting the worship, the glory and honor that only God deserved people taking creation and worshipping that rather than worshipping the creator so in the same meaning of the in this here in this passage is the same meaning of the verb that we use to describe God's anger when Israel that was God's people back in the Old Testament when they committed adultery this righteous jealousy is the same righteous jealousy that God had because these idols had no right to be there and God was concerned uh, sorry Paul was concerned for the honor and the glory of God's name in Athens. Now, when we look at the idols in our city, the idols in our own lives, do we feel as Paul felt? Is that what we feel when we see this adultery? Or are we perhaps indifferent? When we look around our city today and we see that people aren't worshiping God as they ought, but rather are worshiping other things, anything and everything except God. Does that provoke a, a righteous jealousy in us? Or like me, have we become immune to this? We see it so often, we're just too passive. Do we fail to see idolatry for what it really is? It's an abomination before God. It is stripping God of the glory and honor he deserves. It's stealing that from him. So when we think about what should really motivate us to speak, what should motivate us to go and tell people about the gospel, about this God that we serve? The Great Commission? Jesus said, go and make disciples of the nations? Yeah, absolutely. That should motivate us. Our compassion for the lost. When we look around Edinburgh and we see almost half a million people lost and right now destined for hell. Yes, that should motivate us. But perhaps what should also motivate us is a zeal, our zeal, for the Lord's name, for his glory. We want to see Edinburgh as a city that glorifies God, do we not? That honors his name, that's got passion for him, that seeks to serve him with our lives so that he can receive all the glory and all the honor. That should motivate us. 
Paul saw Athens for what it really was, a city swamped with idols. And Paul felt a great distress. And this prompted Paul to speak, to reason with the people of Athens. The second point, Paul speaks. We read in verse uh, 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, effectively like in the churches, as well in the marketplace day by day with those that happened to be there on the street. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with them. Maybe that's at the universities that we have there. These these philosophers heard Paul speaking, heard Paul reasoning about these idols, and they're intrigued to hear more about this Jesus that he's proclaiming. Verse 18. What's this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. We can see that Paul was preaching the gospel in Athens. And this got people thinking, wow, what's this? This is new. They heard this before. We want to know more. So Paul is then taken by them and he gets to address the Oropagus. This was like the Senate, the, the world famous Supreme Council of Athens, if you like. And he was called before them to talk to them. Now, it's interesting how Paul tackles this opportunity. When I read this, I was expecting Paul to go, tear down these idols. They shouldn't be here. Get rid of them. Smash them all. This is not right. Is that what Paul says? No, it's not. Paul begins by saying in verse 22, men of Athens, I see that every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and carefully observed your objects of worship, I even found an altar with his inscription to an unknown God. Paul first of all actually builds an apologetic bridge to them Paul doesn't go in all guns blazing speak a load of Christian jargon that perhaps certainly I'm perhaps prone to do when telling people about the gospel what Paul first does is that he builds an apologetic bridge he engaged them where they were at see Paul understood their worldview. he knew about their worldview and where they were coming from the two examples of worldviews we have here we can see in the Epicureans and the Stoics, two different worldviews. First of all, the Epicureans, they kind of believe that if there is a God, it's far too remote to have any influence in human life. The world's due to random chance, really. Death is the end, that's it. There's no resurrection, there's certainly going to be no judgment. So, therefore, live your life as happy as you can possibly do that, obtain happiness by living a life that is devoid of any pain. That was your goal in life, to live a happy life, and that was it. The Stoics kind of believed in a God, some sort of world soul type God. They believed in fate, they believed in chance, and their whole purpose in life was to pursue harmony with nature and reason, no matter however painful that may get. They wanted to pursue harmony. It's got the Epicureans, live a happy life, Stoics, try and pursue harmony as much as you can. Paul understood this. And in his speech here to the Oropagus, he tried to transform this world view of theirs. And like I say, he doesn't go in there, show it, calling them out on their idolatry. He doesn't say tear them all down because that wouldn't really make much sense. Because we just learnt from their world view that they don't really know who God is. And if they don't really know who God is, 
then why would you think of worshipping these other gods as wrong, really? If they do not have a clear understanding of who God really is. So instead, Paul starts picking them up on their own admission of ignorance. And then he proclaims to them who this unknown God really is. I wonder when it comes to perhaps sharing the gospel with those in Edinburgh. Do we do so by engaging with their worldview? I think sometimes we feel this defensive nature come upon us when someone asks us what we believe. And we think we've got to give a defense of our, what we believe without actually asking them, well, what do you believe? This is what I believe, what do you believe? Tell me about your worldview. You might not quite say it like that, but you know what I mean. I think perhaps we have two worldviews that are quite prevalent in our society today. First one, hashtag YOLO. Y-O-L-O, you only live once. This is perhaps more of the side of the Epicurean side of it. This idea you only have one life, so take as much enjoyment, as much pleasure from it as you possibly can. Be daring, be bold, go for it. Just do it, the Nike advert. Don't listen to what other people think of you. You stay true to yourself and you do what makes you feel right. You only live once. YOLO. Or perhaps maybe the other worldview of good works as a good person. If I live my life as a good person, then what's for me won't go by me. Perhaps more stoic in this outlook. Live a good life by doing good works. Support the charities, help others, love as much people as you can do. Do whatever you can to make other people be happy. And if you're a good person, do you know what? If there is something after death, then you'll be in good standing because you are a good person. And good people don't go to hell, do they? No, they don't. If you're a good person, it's almost your ticket into heaven, really, isn't it? Two worldviews I think we have in this world. So ask them, what is your worldview? What, what do you believe? And they start to go transforming their worldview to see who God really is. And try and correct that. So having bought an apologetic bridge, Paul begins to transform their worldview by proclaiming to them who this unknown God really is. So who is this unknown God according to Paul? Well, the first thing we see in verse 24, this unknown God is the creator of all things. Contrary to what the philosophers of Athens may believe, Paul makes it quite clear that there is a creator God who made the world and everything in it. And this creator God is the Lord of heaven and earth. (laughs) You cannot limit this creator God to temple made by human hands. What a ludicrous idea that is. God created absolutely everything we see and beyond. And you think you need to build him a temple and just keep him in there? And you're going to limit him like that? Really? You did not create a place for God to live. He creates a place for you to live. This is what Paul is telling the Athens and Athens here. And do you think this creator God depends upon humans? (laughs) You cannot be more wrong. We are the ones who depend upon him just even to breathe because this creator God is also the sustainer of all life. Verse 25. This creator God is the sustainer of all life. God sustains all that he has created. He himself gives everyone life and breath and everything is. 
Take a breath. Breathe in. Humor me. And out. And in. And out. And in. And out. Three breaths you just had there, all given to you by God. God gave you that breath. Every single breath that you breathe, God gives that to you. He is the sustainer of all life. Again, ludicrous to think that he will need sustaining himself or needs our supply given to him. We depend upon God. He does not depend upon us. And Paul goes on, yeah, and this God that you're trying to put inside a temple with some pathetic altar is also happens to be the ruler of all the nations. Verse 26. He made all the nations and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. History and geography, yep, they're under this creator God's control. This sovereign ruler of all the nations. This creator God, sustainer of all life, he controls all the nations. Why does God make the nations and set their history and geography? Well, Paul tells us in verse 27. When he says, God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. See, the purpose of God creating the nations, sustaining life, being history over history, a ruler of our history and geography, well, so that we'd reach out to him. Creation sings the Father's song, is a song we sing here. God has not left himself without testimony. Really, there's no excuse for ignorance in how this unknown God. God's made himself clear through creation so that we would reach out to him. But again, the scriptures make clear that our sin gets in the way of this. Our idolatry blinds this vision. He is not far from us, but we are far from him. God is not lost. We are the ones who are lost. And then fourthly, just to put the final nail in their worldview coffin, Paul uses their own poets, he quotes their poets, to say that God is the father of all humans. Now what Paul means here is not necessarily that he is our father in heaven in terms of a family father. What he means here is that God created us all to be in his image. We are in his offspring because we bear the same image as God. Now, as I get older in life, the more the amount of people who tell me, man, you look just like your father that I get all the time. I think it's the ears. <laughs> we do have big ears in my family. But people are always saying, man, you look just like your father. I am considering suing a few people for saying that, but anyway. <laughs> But yeah, but this idea of God in us. God created us in his image. Paul was saying here, you think you have to make some idol that looks like us? No, 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 no. You do not make God to be in our image. We are the ones that are in his image. We were created in the image of God, not the other way around. And Paul's going, are you really wanting to worship these idols? These idols that are created by human hands? They can't move by themselves, that are fully dependent upon humans, that have absolutely no power. You want to worship them over the creator, the sustainer of all life, the sovereign ruler of all nations, and whom we were created in his image? Can you understand why I'm getting so distressed here? 
but the city that is swamped with idols. Paul shows them who God really is. And by doing so, he shows them what idols really are. They do not even come close to this creator God, the sustainer of all life, the ruler of all nations, the father of all nations in whom we are created in his image. Are we beginning to see that when we compare these idols to the almighty God, the only God, they do not even come close. But Paul is not finished there. He goes on in verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising them from the dead. Paul is telling them here that there is a judgment day that is coming. And God is not going to overlook the ignorance that they've shown here in Athens. The judgment day is set. The judge has been appointed. This unknown God, creator of all things, sustainer of all life, ruler of all nations, father of all nations, is also the judge of the world. God in his mercy overlooked the ignorance before, but not anymore. See, God has not left himself without any testimony. We see God in creation. We see God in his word, the Bible. We see God in his son, Jesus Christ, God incarnate. God has not left himself without testimony. This judgment is coming. And this judgment is universal. Nobody's going to escape it. One day, every single one of us here tonight will have to give an account for our lives to God. That day is coming. This judgment day is going to be righteous. There will be no miscarriages of judgment. And this judgment is definite. The day is set, the judge appointed, Jesus Christ. And you want proof of that? Look at the resurrection. Paul says here, God has given us proof. He raised Jesus back from the dead. Jesus is the Lord and he is the judge. Well, that was enough for the Epicureans to hear. And they put Paul to halt there because, as I said before, they did not believe in any resurrection. And Paul's speech is now brought to a halt. And now we see three responses to Paul's attempt to transform their worldview. Some people sneered. They mocked Paul. They laughed at Paul. <laughs> what does this guy know? He's just a babbler. Get rid of him now. Some people wanted to know more. We want to hear you again on this subject. Please come back. Tell us more. But some people repented. Some people saw God for who he really is. And some people saw their idolatry for what it really is. And they repented. And like the Thessalonians before, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They repented. And when that judgment day comes for them, they're going to have Jesus, not only as their judge, 
but also a mediator there. They now have Jesus' righteousness. Their sins' idolatry has been washed away by Jesus' blood on the cross. And like Jesus raised from the dead, they've also been raised from the dead into new life in him. So that when they give an account to God for their lives, God goes, it's okay. The slate has been wiped clean. You're righteous and you come. Maybe for those of us who perhaps aren't Christians here tonight, I wonder what you've thought of Paul's speech. I wonder what you've thought of what I've said tonight. Maybe you're in the YOLO camp. You only live once. Maybe you think that life here is all there is. You've only got one life, so I'm just going to go for it. I'm going to live life to the full. Nobody can tell me otherwise. Well, can I tell you that the Bible teaches us that you don't only live once. There is, in fact, life after death. This really isn't it. In fact, the Bible also tells us that life is like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes what's to come will last for an eternity maybe you're in the good works good person camp think of you, if you live life as a good person don't steal, don't murder, don't really hurt other people, I'm going to be alright well the Bible also tells us that there's no such thing as a good person we're right to think that a good person doesn't go to hell, that's true <laughs> because none of us are good there is no one righteous, not even one. Read that in Romans. We are all bad people. We're all sinners. We're all adulterers in desperate need of a saviour. Well, whatever your worldview is, maybe you've got more than that. The judgment day is coming. And on that day, you will need to give an account for how you lived your life. And as Paul says here, God will not overlook ignorance. We are without excuse. God has made himself plain to us. So how are you going to respond now? Are you going to smear, mock, laugh? Or maybe you perhaps want to know more. If that's you, we've got connect cards sitting in the pews. Please do take time, fill one of these out, put your details on it. We'd love to get in contact with you and chat more with you about this. Just hand them to a welcome or put in the box or or see me at the door Matt and I will be down by the doors come and speak to us or maybe perhaps you do see the idolatry in your life maybe you know that you are a sinner and in need of a saviour and maybe you are ready to take that next step of repentance from your sins and belief in Jesus Christ well please before you leave tonight speak to someone speak to myself speak to Matt Speak to whoever brought you tonight. Speak to whoever's a Christian here tonight and they can lead you in that prayer of repentance. We'd love to do that. And you too can believe like some of those in Athens did. You can turn, from a, turn to God from idols instead of the living and true God. For those of us who have already done that, who are Christians, do you see the idols in your own lives? Certainly studying this passage for me this week has shed light on the idols that I have in my life. The areas of my life that I'm not giving God the glory. Whereas he can give the idol the glory. Do we feel distress at these idols in Edinburgh in our lives? 
Do we feel that righteous anger that God is not receiving the worship, the glory and honor? If you don't pray that God will make you feel like that. <laughs> Read over this passage again, see who God really is and compare that to the idols and then you'll start to feel some distress because these idols don't even come close. And are we going to speak? Are we going to tell people who God really is? That no other God, no other idol even comes close to the creator God, the sustainer God, the sovereign ruling God, the only God. Because that judgment day is coming. Do we live our lives reflecting that? Think of the non-Christians you have in your friends and your family. Are you holding on to the idol of comfort? Are you holding on to the idol of relationships because you don't want to offend them and lose them? And you're happily have a relationship here on this earth, but really you're going to ultimately lose them when they go to hell and you go to heaven. That's what's at stake. Time is running out. That judgment day is coming. Does our lives reflect?